this earth and gentle like your father, joyful like a child secure. Make me brave to speak your words, give faith that beckons miracles, make me pure and holy. Oh, 
actually a new song, so we'd love to start with a chorus and teach it to you. So with a thousand. With a thousand hallelujahs, we magnify your name. You alone deserve the glory, the honor, and the praise. Lord Jesus, this song is forever yours. A thousand hallelujahs and a thousand
And uh, hey, good morning, Fusion family. Good morning. I get my good morning a little earlier. Hey, at this time, uh, our little ones can be dismissed. Meet Mary over there at the door and uh, for children's worship and um, Sunday school. And then we're going to do a blessing. So something that uh, we've done here, I, sh- I say we, uh, but it precedes my time, has been a blessing over our little ones to show them that we value them, and then they return the blessing. And so it's been a while since we've done this, and uh, our, we just took our kids out to dinner, and it's been a while, right? And so you, got, you need a little bit of practice, you know, to do things you haven't done in a while. And so what we're going to do is uh, offer this blessing, and then boys and girls... Your response is, and also with you, okay? And so let's, let's show them how to do this with some volume and some passion. Uh, together, the Lord be with you and also with you. Let's do it one more time. The Lord be with you and also with you. There we go. That is beautiful. Yeah, we can praise God for our little ones. They are a gift. Uh, also, this week, just a quick announcement. Uh, it is the staff chili cook-off this Wednesday uh, for Wednesday night community night. So dinner will be a little bit early, 5 o'clock, and uh, the Wernland chili is going to be incredible. So whatever the best one is, that's ours. Okay, anyway, uh, just kidding. But let's go to the Lord yeah, with a word of prayer. And as we do, hear these words from Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Psalmist writes, therefore we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, those waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Lord God, we, we come to you on this Sunday morning and just acknowledge this imagery of the Psalms, of mountains falling into the heart of the sea, the things in this world that seem so secure falling into the sea, which represented chaos in the ancient world. And Lord, we acknowledge that, that we look at our lives, we look at this world, and, and that, res- that represents part of our lives and our experiences in this world because of the brokenness of sin. We look around at our world and we see unrest. We see continued polarization among people. We see injustice that just continues in every corner of the world from people being treated like property and the list could go on and on. Inequity and poverty and hunger and all these things, sickness. Lord, right now, many of us are, are paying attention to what's happening in Russia and Ukraine. And, and Lord, it just, it makes us so uncertain and uneasy about the world we live in. But God, it's not just global events. It's not just what's happening uh, across the oceans, Lord. It's what's happening right at home, whether in our own country, our state, Lord, our own households and communities. And we see, Lord, the impact of of sin in this world. Lord, we see it in illness, in those that we love who are, who are struggling and fighting for life. God, we pray that you would break in and bring, bring healing and restoration. We see it, Lord, 
in, in loss and death, Lord, the greatest enemy. And for some of us, Lord, we still feel that a, a loss in a very tangible and sharp way. We pray, God, that you would comfort in that loss. We see it, Lord, in the brokenness of, of relationships and, and relationships that should be strong and a source of strength. And God, in our lives, those relationships are a source of pain and hurt because what we long for is not what we're experiencing. Lord, it feels like the, the mountains are crashing into the sea. But God, your psalm continues. And you write, starting in verse four, there's a river whose stream make glad the city of God, the holy place where the most high dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. God, your word reminds us of our future in Christ. Lord, throughout this series, we've been, we've been studying the kingdom of God and how the, the parables teach and expand and challenge and, and, and incite some imagination about what this kingdom that, Lord Jesus, you will bring fully when you return. And God, this is what awaits. Lord, peace and justice and restoration and healing. And in the midst of a world that feels like it's falling apart, Lord, we rest secure in the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, that death has been defeated in Christ's resurrection. Lord, that one day you will come again and you will wipe every tear from our eyes and all things will be restored and made new. We thank you for this hope that anchors us that is a rock, that is a refuge in a world that seems chaotic and out of control. And then, Lord, your word continues. Verse 10, the psalmist says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Lord, when we think about how we can respond, Lord, sometimes the best thing we can do is simply to quiet our hearts, to unplug the noise that keeps being shouted into our ears, unplug the phones and the devices and all these things and just simply rest in the quiet and allow your spirit to, to minister and to speak into our hearts. So, Lord, we do that now and we rest, and we listen. And Lord, may your spirit continue to minister into our hearts and our minds and our souls. We pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior and God's people say, amen. God's word is a gift. It is, friends, it is good to be together. It is good to to bless our kids and to allow them to bless us. Uh, they are a gift to us. You'll notice too that uh, we have the, the table before us, uh, the Lord's table. And uh, so if, if you did not receive a, a little cup um, as you came in, uh, just raise your hand or do a little dance and uh, Mary or someone will come and, and uh, supply you with a little, little cup uh, here. Uh, actually, we got Linda, because Mary's with the kids. So I'm, I'm tasking Mary with way too many things than she could possibly do at one time. Uh, but we'll get you that cup. Um, quick little story. I, uh, our, our kids, our Emmeline, I should say, guess what she's studying right now in school? The parables. And so she just came home today with a little book of parables. 
and, uh, and she's got all these parables, and then she writes what she learned in the parables. And then uh, she wanted me to read this. Um, I don't know if I'll read the whole thing, but she wrote her own parable. And, uh, and it, it was about a stapler who represents God and Satan who represents stapler, or no, God is the staple remover, and de the devil is the staple. Anyway, so there you go. The imagination of a little one represented in modern imagery, staples and staple removers. Our kids are great, amen. Uh, this morning we are back in the parables of Jesus. Believe it or not, we only have one more week in this series, uh, one more parable to study. I don't know about you, but that's a little disappointing. Uh, because uh, I've just enjoyed exploring and studying, going in depth with the parables of Jesus. The, the series we've been calling uh, is Scandal of Grace, and it goes by that title because the parables challenge our assumptions and paradigms and how the world works. Jesus brilliantly uses story to draw us in, to capture our imagination in ways that, that statements or commands rarely can. Right, stories just capture us. Uh, and all, all the parables are intended to help us understand something about the radical nature of the kingdom of God that Jesus was announcing in his ministry and brought forth in his life and death. Uh, but we only have one more week uh, because uh, ne not next week, but the week after we'll be in the season of Lent. And so in two Wednesdays, we'll have an Ash Wednesday service here during community night. Uh, I just say that a couple weeks in advance uh, just so you can prepare your heart for that season. But this week, we're looking at one of the more, I think, kind of confounding parables of Jesus. It is the, the sheep and the goats from Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. Uh, and I think it's a passage that most, many of us are probably familiar with, uh, at least this one part of the parable that G, where Jesus associates uh, himself with the least of these, right? And so we gather from this parable that when we help those in need, the least of these, uh, we are actually helping Jesus. And, and I think there's obviously truth in that. Uh, but the part of the parable that we have a hard time connecting with is, is the rest of what Jesus says about separating sheep and goats and words of, about eternal punishment, eternal life. Like, what do we make of all that? And I'm not sure we're actually going to answer all the different questions that you might have swirling around in your mind uh, this morning. But what we can do is study the text, and we're really going to jump into the context this week uh, to help us figure out not only what the parable is maybe starting to say, but also what the parable is not saying. And that's going to kind of be how we frame our time. But before we do any of that, let's jump right in. We're going to get to the context in a little bit. Let's jump into Matthew 25, verse, starting with verse 31. If you're willing and able, I invite you to stand as we honor God as he speaks to us this morning. Uh, this is the parable of the sheep and the goats. Matthew 25. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, 
Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We join me in a word of prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for how words like this parable in some ways encourage us, in other ways bring about questions. And Lord, in all these postures, Lord, we thank you that your spirit speaks and invites us in. And so, Lord, as we study, as we, as we look at these words of you, Lord Jesus, may you direct our hearts to your truth. May we be grounded in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Just this past week, I was uh, doing some text texting with some uh, old high school, but, but also we grew up together. They were grade school buddies. And uh, we're just reminiscing about, uh, this is how you know you're getting old, the good old days, right? Anyway, I'm still working through that, obviously, yeah. The good old days. Anyway, so we're thinking about elementary school and middle school, and we're really thinking about grade school lunches. Now, do you, does anyone remember like the hot lunches that you got? Or maybe some of you had uh, lunch from home, bag lunches, and it was like ham and cheese every day. It was just consistent, a constant thing, a comfort food. But anyone else have hot lunch growing up? Some. And, and, and we were just kind of reminiscing like, what were your favorites? You know, by the way, I think it was like 45 cents when I was growing up. That's how much hot lunch was. And you could get an IOU. Anyway, we were just reminiscing some of our favorite hot lunches. There was the... Um, Anyone in my generation? That rectangular piece of pizza. Does anyone remember that? It was this big tray, and they were all cut in uniform pieces, and it was like, pizza day, yes! Our kids get Pizza Hut. Like, what in the world? Anyway, that rectangular pizza, that was like a favorite. Uh, I, I also loved breakfast for lunch, brunch, when we had the, the French toast sticks. Like, that was a big deal. That was a big deal for us. Uh, the other one, um, Salisbury steak. I got one. Does anyone like Salisbury steak? Okay, definitely not steak, and I don't know who Salisbury is, but he does a really good job because it's delicious. Salisbury steak, mashed potatoes, I, I love that one. But then there are also like ones that you're like, oh man, fish stick day, and you could like knock those things on the tray. Anyway, there were like other lunches that were not great. Anyway, just kind of reminiscing about childhood and the simplicity of childhood, like being a kid is pretty simple. And like when I was a kid, like that was like one of the big time worries. Like, that was my big concern. Like, what were we having for lunch, right? 
And all of a sudden you get older, you become an adult, you get into adulthood, and do, do our worries shrink or do they seem to get bigger? Bigger. Bigger. I, I, uh, I don't know about you, but I pull out that little phone and I go to the little news feed app and I'm almost scared as that thing's opening. What news, what news am I going to come across today? It's been almost two years since the world was kind of turned upside down with the pandemic. It feels two years later that our world in 2022 still is spinning out of control. There continues to be uh, polarization, political, but even beyond that. Like our world just seems so at odds with one another. You look at, at our economy and there's inflation, right? Going through the roof. You look at our, our world and there continues to be this increasing gap between those who have and those who are without. In the prayer mentioned, we're all keeping a close eye on what's happening in Russia and the Ukraine and, and what, is that, what does that say about what the world's gonna look like in a month from now or, or more? Not only that, but you, you open that app and, and what's getting news, right? What's newsworthy? It's tragedies, it's controversy, and we're just inundated with this news that's disheartening or scary or worse. And here's the thing, and we've talked about this before, but, but right now in 2022, we can get more information in, the, in our pocket, in the palm of our hand, than most people throughout human civilization ever had access to in their entire lifetime. By far, actually, right? And, 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 and not only that, but the news we get um, is, is like 100 years ago, all the news you got was like what was happening in your local town, right? And so the, you, you hear news, someone yells like, you know, the Johnson's house or whatever is on fire. And you could do something about it. You get in your horse and buggy and you go over there and you start pitching water to try to put out the fire. Now we get all this news from all around the world and we, don't, we can't do anything tangibly about it. And so the question is like, what, the world seems to be falling apart and the question we're just asked like, what can I do about it? And, and there's two typical kind of baseline reactions. Like one is action, like, right? Like we see this stuff, this chaos in our world, this uncertainty in our world, so we want to take action. And what does that mean? We, we, we research and we want to understand it. We want to control it. We want to fight it. We want to, we want to fix it. We want to do something about it. And some of us are kind of wired that way, right? But oftentimes, like the best we can do is maybe, you know, post something on Twitter or whatever, the other side, and I kind of more fall in category number two, is the other side. It's like, this is overwhelming. I don't know what to do with it. So it's like apathy. I just want to like bury my head in the sand and distract myself by watching sports or whatever, or playing video games. I guess I don't really do video games, but right? I want to just distract myself and not think about it. Like, what do we do? Take action, apathy. The world seems in chaos, and there's so much uncertainty about the future, and we're like, what do I do about it? Well, here's the thing about what we're experiencing. Now, of course, I think social media technology has kind of exaggerated or amplified it. But here's the thing. Every generation, every generation has thought that things have never been worse. Every generation of Christians have been convinced that the end times are upon us. And I say that not to minimize the troubles or the uncertainty. And, and, I, and I don't say that to, to try to make any kind of bold predictions because certainly as we're going to read in our words, I don't know when Jesus is coming again. 
But I simply say that to, to share that troubles and uncertainty and chaos in this broken world has been a universal concern throughout the centuries. In fact, as we're looking at Matthew 25, this is the context, chaos, trouble, uncertainty, that Jesus is sharing the parable that we just read. There is chaos, there is trouble, there is uncertainty. And actually understanding more fully the context in which Jesus speaks this parable from Matthew 25 is going to go a long way to helping us understand the purpose and what Jesus is actually trying to communicate in this parable. So we want to just spend some significant time looking at the context of Matthew 25. Now to understand the the parable in the context of, of Matthew 25, We need to understand the the context in which it was told. And so what we're actually going to need to do is go back a couple chapters to Matthew 21. Okay, Matthew 21 is when Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem. This is where we, the the telling of Jesus' triumphal entry, right? And so Jesus is ministering, and then Jesus enters his final week of his life, Holy Week. We know it as Palm Sunday. Matthew 25 is Palm Sunday. Palm branches, Hosanna, right? Jesus riding in on a colt. That's Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Immediately after that, Matthew 21, 12 through 17, Jesus cleanses the temple. So another familiar scene where Jesus throws over tables and clears out the temple of, in Jerusalem saying, this is my father's house. It's to be a, a house of prayer. You've made it a den of robbers, right? Now, it's important to understand that that, that was an explosive event, and that really rocked the religious leaders. And from there, if you read Matthew 22 and 23, there's all these teachings, and Jesus has these clashes with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And, it, and it's, it's just the tension. It's like a tinderbox. That's the environment that Jesus and his disciples are, are living in during Holy Week. All these, all these, all these different uh, clashes with the religious leaders. In fact, Matthew 23, toward the end there, there's the seven woes, and Jesus says some pretty insulting things to the Pharisees. You are like whitewashed tombs, right? The outside looks all nice, but on the inside, it's death. Like, he says some really offensive things to the Pharisees, and at the end of that, we have Matthew 23, verse 37 and 39. Jesus says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he's lamenting. You who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent to you, How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Notice Jesus is longing for the people of God to come. This is compassionate, caring, uh, and yet they were not willing. And now verse 38, look, your house is, is left to you desolate, the temple. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's how chapter 23 ends, and then chapter 24 begins, and Jesus turns to his disciples. So suddenly it's this public event, this public clash with Pharisees, chapter 23. Chapter 24 becomes a private conversation between Jesus and his disciples. Chapter 24 opens, Jesus' disciples, they're leaving Jerusalem. The disciples are looking up at the temple the Temple Mountain, all the buildings. And if you've been to Israel, even today, after the temple's been destroyed, it's a magnificent structure. And they're all admiring it, like, look at this, this is incredible. Jesus says to his disciples, this temple's gonna be destroyed. There's not gonna be a stone left unturned. 
which leads the disciples to ask two questions starting in verse 3. They've moved beyond the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives, verse 3. Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives. This overlooks the temple. The disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? Referring to the destruction of the temple. If Jesus just told you that and you're a first century Jew, you'd be wondering the same thing. When in the world is this thing going to happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? It's these two questions that set up all of Matthew chapter 24 and I think chapter 25 because Jesus is answering these two questions of the disciples. We have Jesus' response. Jerusalem falling would have been a terrifying, absolutely terrifying future. And Jesus, but Jesus gives it to him straight. It's gonna be really bad, Matthew 24. There's gonna be wars and rumors of wars. There's gonna be false messiahs. He's going on beyond that. But he says it's not the end of the world. These are just the birth pains, right? Verse eight. He says, watch out for false messiahs, right? Who will deceive. Instead, look for the son of God. And so now he starts talking about his own coming again, Jesus' second coming. As far as when, he says, when will the temple be destroyed? Jesus says in verse 34, in one generation, these things will happen. Do you know what one generation, in biblical language, one generation is the number 40, right? People of God wandered 40 years in the wilderness for one generation to pass before they could enter the promised land. 40 years, biblical language for one generation, 40 years. Do you want to know when the temple was destroyed? 70 AD, like 37-ish years. It's pretty close, right? So one generation, the temple will be destroyed. As far as the second question, when will Jesus return? Jesus goes on in Matthew 24 to say that no one knows when Jesus will return. Right? Only the Father knows, says Jesus. Right? Only the Father knows. So Jesus is offering comfort in the face of uncertainty. His disciples hear this stuff that the temple's going to be destroyed. There's all this tension. So Jesus is turned to his disciples. He's offering comfort and honesty in the face of uncertainty. And he gives the disciples then some instruction on how to live. We're going to come back to this, but verses 10 through 14 in chapter 24, there's some explicit instructions on how to live in the meantime. And what I believe is the parables then are expanding on how are you to live, disciples, in this time of uncertainty, right? After, after Jesus dies on the cross, how, do you, how are you to live as you wait for the second coming of Jesus the Messiah, right? How do you wait for that second coming? This is the context that I think is key to understanding Matthew chapter 25. There's three parables, and this is context is key to understanding the, what these three parables are trying to tell the disciples because it's a private conversation in this context. And this context also helps us guard against improper conclusions about Matthew 25, including the parable of the sheep and the goats. And so that's what we're going to explore next. What is the parable not saying? What is the parable not teaching? What is the parable not intending to do? Because here's the thing. One of the biggest issues we face when reading and interpreting scriptures in general is that we ask the wrong question of the text. Or we ask the text or we ask the Bible to do more than it's intended to do. A couple of examples. Revelation 7 mentions four angels standing on the four corners of the earth. There's other passages that talk about how the world is structured and there's waters above, waters below, the, 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 the heavens sitting on the foundations of the earth. And, and you could read all that. And as particularly, you could read Revelation 7 and think four corners of the earth. 
but the earth is round, right? Like this is not a, this is not like, right? This, the Bible's not postulating a flat earth theory, right? Because four corners suggests a rectangle, a flat surface, a, a globe doesn't have corners. What is the Bible? You're asking the wrong question. Right? You're asking the wrong question. Revelation 7 is not trying to describe the earth's dimension or shape. Not to mention there was a totally different understanding 2,000 years ago of how the earth was created. We didn't know the earth was round until like 500 years ago, right? So you're just asking the wrong question if you're drawing those conclusions. Here's another one. Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 talks about the mountains singing and the trees clapping their hands, right? I think there's a song. The trees of the forest will clap their hands. Am I singing that right? I don't know. No one's saying with me, so I'm assuming I'm doing it completely wrong. But there is a song about the trees of the forest clapping your hands. And you could read that and you could be like, this Bible is hogwash, right? The trees don't have hands, right? You're reading it wrong. It's poetry. It's beautiful poetry and imagery that helps us understand that the, the creation itself worships the Lord. You're, you're asking the wrong question. Does that make sense? Are you tracking me? Follow me? Okay. So Jesus, remember, we're talking about the parables, and the parables Jesus uses to teach something specific in a specific moment and context. If we're trying to make it more than that, then we're going to get to some kind of interesting conclusions. And here's the thing. The parable, this parable is not intended to teach an exhaustive systematic theology on the final judgment or on heaven and hell. And so if you're asking, if you can ask too many questions of this parable if you take it out of context. Jesus here is not trying to teach on all the tensions and mysteries. Let's be honest, there's just a lot of things about the final judgment we don't know, the nuances. He's using imagery to teach something specific. And if you've ever used metaphor, all metaphors break down if you push them too far. And so it's not wise to ask this parable to do more than it's intended. Again, Jesus, and we're going to come back to this, Jesus is trying to comfort and encourage his disciples who are freaking out a bit because of all the tension that's being raised in the Pharisees who want Jesus dead because they've seen what's going on. They sense what's happening in Jerusalem in this final week, right? And, the, and they're wondering about these questions about the temple being destroyed. Matthew 25 is helping them know how to live in this season that awaits Christ's return. Again, we're going to come back to that. But Jesus is not trying to teach a systematic theology on heaven and hell and the final judgment. That's the first thing. The second thing that's, that the parable is not intended to do, it's, it's not works righteousness, Okay? This is not a parable that is supporting some kind of works righteousness, meaning that we can do something to earn our own righteousness. Too often, we're tempted to reduce this parable to an equation about what I need to do to be a sheep. It's very clear from this parable, you want to be a sheep, right? You don't want to be a goat. It's very clear, right? Okay, I, I failed with the first song. Is it, do you remember the song from camp? I just want to be a sheep, ba, 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 ba. I just want to be a sheep. Bah, bah, bah. No one's singing with me anymore. I don't blame you. I don't blame you. But we want to be a sheep. And so the temptation is to make this parable a simple equation like love the least of these, and if I love the least of these, that's loving Jesus, and if I do that, I go to heaven. And if I don't do that, I'm going somewhere else I don't want to be. But, but is that what Jesus is saying? Now, what we understand is that goes against a core tenet, a core foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are saved by grace through faith. 
So is that really what it is saying? In fact, I would say that this, this passage itself doesn't suggest that. Verse 34, Jesus says this, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, say unto the sheep, right? Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Inheritance cannot be earned. Inheritance is something received from a parent, right? Because you are loved. Not only that, but it's been something that's been prepared since the creation of the world. This is not some recent appointment like, good job, you love the least of these, now you can go to that. No, this is, this is a, some, a promise that had been prepared since the creation of the world. So even the, the parable itself is not suggesting or promoting any kind of works righteousness. And so if we're gathering that from the parable, we're asking the wrong question and getting the wrong answer. It's not systematic theology. It's not works righteousness. And finally, one more. The parable is not intended to be a scare tactic to get people to love the least of these in our world. Unfortunately, the church of Jesus Christ has too often used the threat of hell as a motivational tool. And it's happened far, unfortunately, far too often in our history. The threat of hell has been used to motivate our young people to follow certain moral ethics, right? Like do this, because we want our kids to, to live a certain way, and that's a, that's a good desire, but we use the threat of hell to get them to, to live a certain way. We use the threat of hell to get people to give their life to Jesus. And that's happened in a variety of different forms from the person standing on the corner with a, with a poster board that, that has these words, like you don't want to burn. Uh, sad to say, I, in, when I was in high school, I, I went to a haunted house, that, that was the intent. It was like a Christian haunted house, and the whole intent was you walk through these horrifying scenes with the hope that you would be so scared by the end that you'd give your life to Jesus. They're called hell houses. It's a real thing. Matthew 25 opens up a whole new opportunity if you're asking the wrong questions to motivate people by fear. Motivate people, scare people to death so that they love those in need because, you know, none of us want to be a goat, right? That's not the intent of this parable. Here's the thing. Fear and threat is a, power, uh, is a powerful motivational tool. I'll give you that. You can get people to do a lot of things if you scare them. But that's not the MO of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? And not only that, but fear cannot motivate someone to love. Think about this. Love, what's love motivated by? Self-giving, giving of oneself. What's fear motivated by? Holding on. Self-perseverance, self-protection. They're, they're complete opposites. They're incompatible. You cannot motivate someone to love by scaring them because they're, they're they, they come from different foundations. So often we, 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 we pair faith and fear as opposites, right? We've, we've seen that. But they're not opposites. Love is the opposite of fear. 1 John 4 says this, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment, but the one who fears is not made perfect in love cannot motivate someone to love, to give of themselves by motivating them to protect and guard themselves. Do you see how that's incompatible? 
You can get someone to do something that looks like love, but the motivation is to protect myself. You tracking with me? You following? Yeah. Okay. It's not works righteousness. It's not an exhaustive theology. It's not a scare tactic. So what is the parable trying to say? What is the parable saying? Remember the context, Matthew 24. It's a private exchange. Conversations become private between Jesus and his disciples. He's telling of things that will come, uh, which will be bad, right? The temple's gonna be destroyed. There's gonna be wars and rumors of war, but Jesus Christ will come again. There will be a final judgment. Jesus will come again to make all things new. And the, the parable then in Matthew 25 helps illustrate to the disciples how to live. Jesus is teaching the disciples how to live in the parables. In fact, I believe the parables echo the statement here in, in Matthew 24. If Matthew 24, verses 10 through 14, this is where Jesus explicitly says how to live in this time. After Jesus' resurrection, after Jesus returns, uh, there's gonna be all this chaos before Jesus comes again. How are you to live in that time, in the season that he's talking about and, and saying what's gonna happen? He says this, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony of, to all nations, and then the end will come. So here's a quick little working theory. The parables expand. Each of the parables expand on a certain element of that verse. The two parables that precede the, the sheep and the goats, the first one is this parable of the ten virgins. There's ten virgins, five of them, remember, to bring oil. They're prepared. The bridegroom's coming back, and, and they're prepared. He comes in the middle of the night. Five of them have the oil. Five don't, and the five who have the oil are let in. The idea here is to stand firm, to keep watch, to be prepared for the, for the son to return, the bridegroom, Jesus Christ to return, because you don't know when he's going to come. So stand firm, keep watch. That same sentiment in verse 13. Not only that, it's, it's live in hope. Live in ready anticipation. Parable of the ten virgins. The next parable is the parable of the talents, right? Or, or really, it's just huge sums of money. A talent was a measure of money, like an exorbitant amount of money. And this parable of the talents, there's a master. He has three servants. And he gives each servant a certain amount of, of talents according to their ability, right? One gets five, one gets two, one gets one. The one with five and two invest and come back with, with an equal amount, right? Five and then two more. Five more, two more. Then there's the one with the one. And what does he do? He hides it. He buries it. The word is he hides that talent. I think this one is getting at what does it mean to live in faith, to invest in the kingdom. And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the world and the testimony of all nations. This is to live in faith, to take what God has given us, the best thing that God has given us, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to invest it, to share it with the world so that it, it pays dividends, so that others come to know Jesus Christ. Live in faith. Parable of the talents. And then finally, we get to the parable of the sheep and the goats. Here Jesus is emphasizing the importance of love because the temptation is that in the face of increased wickedness, right, because of the increased wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Isn't that so true? We, we don't feel much like loving when our world feels like it's falling apart. When we don't know what tomorrow will bring, we don't have a posture of love by default. 
which is hands open and, and giving. When the world seems uncertain, when the world feels like it's falling apart, what's our posture? I gotta hang on to mine. I gotta protect what's mine because I don't know what tomorrow's gonna bring. And that's not a posture of love. That's selfish, that's, that's, that's fear-driven really, right? And so Jesus is teaching his, his disciples in this parable the importance of loving, the importance of having a posture of love where, where hands are open, even though in the chaos of the brokenness of this world, we feel like hanging tight. Did you know something else? Did you notice this, that when he says to the sheep, notice that they don't even, they're surprised by the king's declaration in the parable. They say, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry? When did we feed you? When, when did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When, when, did we, when, did we see, when did we do any of these things? They're surprised because they're not keeping track. Because love doesn't keep a tally of all the good deeds we're doing, right? Because it's not selfishly motivated. They're not saying, oh, if I oh, that's the king, right? They're, that's not, on, that isn't even on their radar. They're just loving as who they've been created to be. They're loving out, they're living out of love because they've received this gracious and abundant love of their good shepherd. They're living as sheep in the care of a good shepherd. They're not keeping track. And here's the wild thing. This idea of judgment, right? Which is like, ah, you know, especially in our modern, you know, in our modern senses, it's like, what is this? Actually, judgment becomes kind of this, this compelling reason why we can love this way. We can live generously because we know that Jesus Christ is coming again, and he's going to bring justice, and evil is going to have its day. It's not going to be part of the kingdom of God. Don't let our love grow cold. Keep living out of our identity of God's beloved. And here's the word for us this morning. It's a similar word. Right? Jesus is sharing a private word of comfort with his disciples, with his sheep, right? He's not, intent, he's not talking to goats. He's talking to sheep. And so for friends, for us as well, we, we look around our world. 2,000 years later, there's chaos, there's uncertainty, there's, there's wickedness. We see it all. It's prevalent. We don't know what the future is going to hold. And we might be tempted to respond in a multitude of different ways. Maybe it's apathy. We just bury our heads in the sand. Gratefully, we live in the United States. We, we have the luxury to, to, to respond with apathy, right? Or maybe we, we, we get called to action and we want to we fixate, we want to control, we want to fix it. And, and act, I mean, those are, that's good. Like taking action, doing something is good. It's part of it. But another, another, another temptation is uncertainty, fear, hang on to what's mine, got to save up a little extra fixated internally. But Jesus calls us to something else, not to hold tight, to live with hands open, to, to, to be willing to give to those in need because, you know, we know our future is secure. That's living out of faith. That's living out of hope. That's living out of love. And this response in the face of uncertainty, to not hold tightly to what we have, but to live with a posture of openness and love, being willing to give and to help those in need, is so countercultural. Our culture says, yeah, you can help those in need, but you give out of your leftovers. Right? Jesus says, live with hands open. 
It's countercultural. It's upside-down way to live. It's an upside-down way to order our lives. It doesn't make any kind of sense, but we're called to live this way. Why? Because someone modeled this way of living 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ modeled this kind of love because he didn't hold on tight to his divinity. He didn't hold tight to his relationship with the Father, but he laid it all. He gave it all giving his life on the cross. And, and we gather around this table. We gather around this table to remember that Jesus Christ gave of himself in love. And he told us, he commands us to, to continue to celebrate this meal. Why? Because it's in this meal that we're reminded of the love and grace of Jesus Christ. It's in this meal that we're formed by that same grace and that same love. And it's in this meal that we're nourished and empowered to live a new kind of life that's completely different from the posture of this world. To live with hands open. Love. Love. Let's pray together. Join me. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for for Lord, how these parables challenge us, comfort us, do all kinds of things within us. And yet, Lord, we could continue to study each of these parables for, for so much longer because they're so rich with meaning because Jesus, you are this brilliant teacher. But Lord, it's not just the, the word that we have by the power of your spirit, but Lord, we thank you also for this sacrament tangible elements, bread and juice that reminds us that, Lord, you are just as real as these things we can hold in our hands and take into our mouths. Lord, you are real and your grace is abundant. So, Lord, prepare our hearts. May we experience your grace and your love and in your empowering work by the power of your spirit, we pray. Prepare us. Lead us to your table. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jesus says in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. As we come to this table of remembrance, communion, and hope, please pray with me once again. We praise you, gracious Father, for you have created heaven and earth, made us in your image, and kept covenant with us, even when we fell into sin. We confess, O oh Lord, that we have fallen short of glorifying you in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds. Please extend your mercy and forgive us. We give you thanks for Christ Jesus, our Lord, by whose grace we may triumph over temptation. Be more fervent in prayer and more generous in love. In Jesus' name, amen. At the Last Supper, the Lord Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink of it, do this in remembrance of me.
For whenever we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we are reminded that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. This table is for all who believe in the Lord Jesus as Savior and desire to live for him. Feel free to take your communion elements at this time. I pre-peeled, but it's not really working for me. There we go. All right. When you're ready, the body of Christ given for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Pray with me, Lord, we thank you for this table and for the reminder of your grace and of your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.
And it's true when we look around at the world, it looks chaotic and broken, because it is. But the words of Jesus Christ remind us that that doesn't come as a surprise to our God, amen? He holds the world in the palm of his hand so we can live in faith, we can live with great hope, and we can live not with a posture of scarcity, but one of abundant love. Let our love not grow cold. As you go from here, receive God's blessing. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father Almighty, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen. Let's join some fellowship time. This song is for